You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we thank you that we can speak to you in prayer and that you speak to us through your word. And we thank you that your spirit stands between us to help us to pray as we ought and to illuminate your word to us. And so we ask for that ministry to be active here amongst us this morning and that you would bring our hearts together in unity before your word and teach us today. Give us understanding and bless this time that we spend together learning and hearing from you. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, it is almost the middle of the month of September, and by my calculations, the attacks on the Christian faith should be in full swing in a little over two months' time. It seems that after Thanksgiving every year, that is when everybody comes out in force and we are treated to a daily barrage of newspaper articles and magazine articles and front-page stories and the constant media criticism of the Christian faith, and it is usually prompted by everything from a cross on public land or in a park to a manger scene in front of a courthouse to children mentioning the name of Jesus in connection with the celebration of his birth or the singing of Christmas carols in parades or at public schools or at school programs or things of that nature. And there seems to be this ongoing and relentless and constant attempt to wipe out any mention of God, particularly the Judeo-Christian God, who is incarnate in Jesus Christ from the public discourse. Have you noticed that? And every year it's just after Thanksgiving when all of the shopping centers get into full swing and the holiday, quote-unquote, season is upon us, not the Christmas season, that uh, all of these attacks come to the forefront and what they cannot uh, what they cannot do in the public opinion, they seem to be able to do in the courts. And isn't that the most disturbing trend of all? It's not that this is happening in the court of public opinion. It's not that this is coming down to us through legislators and legislatures and legislation that is then signed by governors and presidents. The most disturbing element of it all is that it is done in the courts by lawyers in black robes who foist this upon us, at least in my view or from my perspective, something that was unheard of 50 or 60 years ago. When did this all start? Some of you may be thinking, well, 1960s. Some of you were alive long enough to remember back in the 1960s when Madeline Murray O'Hare worked so hard to get the Bible and prayer taken out of the public schools. Some of you were alive in 1925 during the Scopes trial. Maybe that's when you think that the attacks on Christianity in the courts started. Some of you legal buffs, and maybe some of you were alive before 1925 and can remember back to even before that when there were court cases that came up in which the Christian faith was put on trial. And it seems what they what they can't do as far as convincing us of in the court of public opinion, they are able to accomplish in the courts. And so Christianity as a worldview, as a faith, as a religion is put on trial. I, I just read recently of a case in Italy where God was put on trial and the existence of God was legislated in the Italian courts. When did it start? 
you realize that Christianity was put on trial long before the United States ever existed. You may be thinking I'm talking about Paul. I'm not. It actually predates even Paul. It goes back to Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin and answering because they dared to preach and teach in the name of Jesus, asserting that their Messiah had died and been risen again and that he was the Christ. And the Sanhedrin flogged them and beat them and told them to preach no more in his name. And it just continued with Paul in Acts chapter 16 in the city of Philippi. Paul was brought before the city magistrates. He and Silas were beaten and in prison. And then the Jews did it again in Acts chapter 18 in the city of Corinth. They brought Paul and his traveling companions down before Gallio in the judgment seat in the square in the city of Corinth, and they put Paul on trial there. And it continued in Acts chapter 21 when Paul was put before the Sanhedrin by Lysias to ascertain what the charges against him would be. You see, they couldn't wrestle with his arguments. They couldn't deal with his facts. And so what they did was seek to try to to bring legislation against him, to get court decisions against him, and in essence to make Christianity illegal. It started with, excuse me, it started with Peter and John and it continued with Paul. And it is a court scene that we find ourselves faced with in Acts chapter 24. And you'll need to have your Bibles open to the book of Acts chapter 24. There is a court scene that unfolds before us in Acts 24. We finished chapter 23 last week and when we left the Apostle Paul, Things from our perspective and from Paul's perspective couldn't have been any better. We left him in the best shape that we've seen him in in a long time. He has been delivered from all of the dangers of Jerusalem and transferred to the safety of Caesarea. And on top of that, the Apostle Paul is, has been given orders to maintain or be, be kept in and to stay in Herod's Praetorium, the governor's mansion, the governor's residence. We read that at the end of chapter 23. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I just... Sigh of relief for Paul. This is the best he's had it in a long time. Finally, a soft bed. Not surrounded by soldiers. No threats on his life. No, no danger to him in the governor's residence. You know he's getting some good meals there, which he probably hasn't had in a long time. It's good for Paul. And then what unfolds in chapter 24 is a courtroom scene because Lysias, when he took Paul to Caesarea gave orders that if his accusers had anything to bring against him, that they were to bring those accusations to Caesarea and bring them before Felix, and Felix would try the case. And so Lysias dusted his hands off of the Apostle Paul, left him with Felix in Caesarea in the governor's mansion, and told the accusers, you take your accusations to Felix. Well, they do that in Acts chapter 24. And what we have is a court scene. And it's a typical court scene. It begins with the prosecution giving their case. That's verses 1 through 9. Then Paul gives his defense, verses 10 through all the way verse 21, which that was our scripture reading this morning. And then there is a verdict in verses 22 through 27. So today we are going to look at the prosecution's case. We are going to look at the accusations that they raised against Paul and ask, do they have any, any valid reason for bringing these accusations? And what is their goal in raising these false accusations against the apostle Paul? So Acts chapter 24, read or follow along with me as I read the first nine verses. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. 
But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant to us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. That's the prosecution's case. Now, Paul's been in Caesarea, and Luke says it took five days for Tertullus and Ananias and the elders from Jerusalem to get to Caesarea. You say, five days, that's a long time for court to begin. It's really not that long at all when you consider that two of those days were spent traveling. The other three days were spent hiring an orator, that's Tertullus. He's a he's an orator or an attorney who's going to present Ananias and the elders' case before Felix against Paul. So they hired an attorney, and you can imagine that they spent those other three days interviewing witnesses, maybe trying to gather witnesses, building a case, crafting their arguments, getting ready to present them before Felix. And then they make the two-day trip down to, up to Caesarea, and they come in there, and they're ready to present their case. They don't want to waste any time. And you know why they don't want to waste any time? Felix already received the letter from Lysias that said, I don't judge that Paul has done anything worthy of imprisonment or death. In other words, as far as Lysias was concerned, he had acquitted Paul, acquitted Paul, and then handed him off to Felix. Now Felix is waiting and waiting and waiting, and Ananias and Tertullus and the elders, those are the members of the Sanhedrin who wanted Paul dead, they're not going to waste any time because if they delay, Felix is going to dismiss the case and said, you don't have any accusers, you're free to go and let them go. They don't want that to happen. So they make haste and they go up to Caesarea and they get ready to present their case. And they come in before Felix and Felix summons the Apostle Paul. And Paul is there and his accusers are there and the court comes into session. And Tertullus, who is the orator, the lawyer for the group, begins to present his case against the Apostle Paul. And look what he says in verse 2. Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. It was customary to sort of flatter the judge. He wanted to say a lot of nice things about the judge. Now here's the problem with what Tertullus has just said to Felix. Not a word of it is true. Not a word of it. By your reforms, great things are happening. We have enjoyed peace, and we are so grateful, and we are so thankful. Not a word of that's true. Let me tell you about Felix. I'm going to tell you about Felix's governorship and the type of man that he was and how he ruled the Jews as the governor of the region. And later on in chapter 24, I'm going to tell you about how immoral this man was. But just listen to how he ruled the nation. Felix was once a slave, and so was his brother Pallas. Felix was a slave and Pallas was a slave. Now Pallas, his brother, had done something to sort of gain the favor of Claudius, the emperor. And he had worked his way up from being a slave to being given Roman citizenship to a position of power in Rome. And Claudius looked at Pallas and his brother Felix as being sort of notable guys who had worked their ways up from, their way up from slavery. And so it was because of Pallas's position of prominence in the administration of Claudius that Felix got his rule in his position as governor in Judea. And it was because he had a brother who knew the emperor, and the emperor gave that rulership to Felix. So Felix had once been a slave, now he was the governor of the nation. And Felix was a brutal man. Every time an uprising would come in the nation, or there would be some sort of revolt, 
Felix would come in and he would he would stomp it so hard. He would come in with such an overwhelming show of force, such an overwhelming show of brutality, that he literally alienated every moderate. Anybody who was sort of ambivalent to what they felt about Rome, Felix made them hate Rome because of the brutality that he showed. He crucified an incalculable number of insurgents, and he crucified an incalculable number of innocent civilians, innocent citizens. That was his brutality. During Felix's rule, there were revolts, there were uprisings, there were insurgents, there were rebels who roamed the streets and the countryside. It wasn't safe to travel. Your life would be in danger outside of some of the cities because these people roamed freely. And there were always these uprisings and this and these sort of mob revolts under Felix's rule. That's what they describe as peace. Tacitus, the Roman historian, once said of Felix, he said he indulged in every kind of immorality and cruelty. And then he said this, quote, he wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave, end quote. What he meant by that is he never got over his slave origins. The guy thought like a slave. He had the mentality of a slave. He never had the aura, never had the mind, never had the composure, never had the posture. He never comported himself like a king, always like a slave. But he had the power of a king and the mentality of a slave. And that's how cruel he was. And there were always these uprisings, always these constant revolts, and the Jews hated him. And two years after this trial, Nero actually removed Felix and replaced him with Festus. You read that in verse 27 of chapter 24. It says, After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. He was so inept, so inept, that he was a favorite of Nero when Nero took the throne, but two years later, Nero had him pulled from power because all he had done was oversee the disintegration of his entire administration. It just went to pot. There is not a single reform that history records that happened under Felix. Just brutality and the rise of assassins. Do you remember the Sicarii? I mentioned the Sicarii a few weeks back. Do you remember who the Sicarii were? They were that group of assassins. Their name comes from the word dagger. And they would mingle in the Jewish festivals and the gatherings. And they would assassinate with daggers hidden under their robes. The pro-Roman Jewish leadership. And remember when Lysias mistook Paul and he said, aren't you that Egyptian terrorist who led the revolt a couple years ago and led the 4,000 out into the wilderness? He thought Paul was a leader of the Sicarii. It was under the administration of Felix that the Sicarii had prospered and were assassinating Jews. That's the type of administration he has. So what does Tertullus begin? begins by saying, we have through you attained much peace. Oh, peace? They had never known times of revolt like this. There was no peace. There was no peace anywhere. It was utter chaos. Utter everything falling apart completely. But through you we have attained much peace. And since by your providence reforms are being carried out. What do you mean by reforms? Do you mean the brutal oppression? Or do you mean the uprisings that were occurring all over the region? What do you mean exactly mean by reforms? We have attained much peace by you. Reforms are being carried out under your administration. And then look at the third lie. And we acknowledge this every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. They weren't thankful. They were resentful. They hated the man. And he knew the Jews hated him. Felix could sit there and he knew that Tertullus was representing a group of people who hated him. Now all of that flattery was customary to give, to give a man all of that praise and all that adoration for things he had never done. Now do you think that Felix felt like he was being flattered? Do you think he did? I don't think he did. You know why? Because men like Felix honestly, honestly believe those things about themselves. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, great men never think that they're great, and little men never realize that they're little. 
Felix was a little man who thought he was great. And so as he hears Tertullus going on and on about all this praise and all this adulation, all these great things that he's done, Felix honestly believes those things about himself. And he knows Tertullus doesn't believe him, but he's just glad to hear somebody else affirm to him what he honestly believes about himself. And so he accepts all of the flattery. And after the flattery, there is the customary promise to be brief. Look what he says. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant to us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. This is if he's saying to the governor, look, governor, I know that you've got a lot of things to do. You're a busy man. Your, your time is at a premium, so we will be brief. Just grant us this brief hearing by your grace. I promise that we're not going to say much. Now, sometimes that promise was kept in court. Sometimes that promise was not kept in court. In this case, it was kept. Tertullus was brief. You know why? Because he wanted to do two things. Say a bunch of nice things about Felix and a bunch of bad things about Paul. But here's his problem. There's not much good to say about Felix and he doesn't have a lot of bad to say about Paul. And so he's brief. He really doesn't have much to say. And as you're going to see, he really doesn't have any court case or any any charges to bring against Paul at all. We have found this man to be a pest. A pest. You ever thought of Paul as being a pest? Governor, we have found this man to be a pest, a loimos. It means somebody who spreads a pestilence. Somebody who is a danger to public health, welfare, and safety because they spread a disease. We have found this man to be a spreader of pestilence. And the implication is that as a spreader of pestilence, he should be either quarantined or executed. And that's exactly what Tertullus and Ananias are arguing for. We want him to be quarantined or executed because he, he presents a grave danger to the public. What was the danger that Paul presented? It was his message. It was the message of the gospel and the faith, the Christian faith. They saw that as a cancer on Judaism. And they saw Paul as the chief proponent of that cancer on Judaism. And so to eliminate the cancer, you have to eliminate the spokesman. That's what they're after. They want to destroy Christianity, but they know in order to do that, that there's one individual that they've got to kill, and that's Paul. Because in their mind, he was the ringleader of the entire sect. We find him to be a pest. Now let me ask you this question. Do you think that the enemy of your soul, do you think Satan views you as a pest? Do you think that he views you as a pest? Do you think he views you as a pest in this way? Are you so active in spreading the pestilence of Christianity that Satan views you as a pest and a spreader of the pestilence? Friends, if Christ is a pestilence, and if Christianity is a pestilence, then you and I should be the worst pests of anybody spreading that pestilence. That's how they viewed Paul. This guy's a pest, a spreader of a cancer. And they knew they had to kill him. What were the charges that they bring against him? There's three of them, beginning in verses 4 through 6. There are three specific charges that they bring against the Apostle Paul. Now I'm going to give you those three charges. I'm going to list them for you, and then we're going to look at each one specifically. The first charge... Verse 4, uh, verse 5, sorry. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world. The first thing they charged him with was sedition. Sedition. Sedition was a crime against Roman law. He stirs up all the Jews throughout the whole world. They charged him with sedition. The second charge they bring against him is that of sectarianism. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Sectarianism was a violation of the Jewish law. And the third thing they charge him with is sacrilege. Sacrilege was a violation of God's law. He even tried to desecrate the temple. Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Those are the three charges that they're bringing against the Apostle Paul. He's a seditionist in that he is riling up all of the Jews all over the world, constantly causing dissension. 
He's guilty of sectarianism because he is the ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. And he is guilty of sacrilege because he tried to desecrate our temple. Sedition, a violation of Roman law. Sectarianism, a violation of Jewish law. And sacrilege, a violation of God's law. They've got their bases covered, don't they? Let's look at those three. The first one is that of sedition. They charged him with sedition. He is causing dissension everywhere amongst all of the Jews. Now, what's important to notice this is this. How soon after the mention of, through you we have attained much peace, that this charge of sedition is made. Governor, through you we have attained much peace. In other words, what Tertullius is reminding him of is this. It is your job to keep the peace. It is your job to put down sedition. It is your job to deal with seditionists. And because of your brutality and because of your hostility and because of your aggressiveness in doing this, we have attained much peace. It is because of how you approach seditionists in the past with all of your cruelty and brutality that because of you we enjoy the peace that we do today. Now, by the way, here's a seditionist. He's guilty of causing dissension amongst all the Jews. You know what they're banking on? They're banking on the fact that Felix is going to deal with Paul like he has all of the other seditionists that Felix had dealt with. That's what they're hoping for. That's why they mention all of the peace that they had enjoyed. It's your job to deal with seditionists. Here's one. Right here. He's guilty of causing dissension amongst all the Jews. Now I ask you, was Paul guilty of doing that? Had Paul done that? If you had looked at the track record of the Apostle Paul, would you have seen mobs and violence and uprisings following him around? Would you have seen that? You certainly would have seen that, wouldn't you? You would have seen that when he went to Lystra, that the Jews came and they created this mob that stoned him and left him for dead. When he went to Philippi, there was this uprising and they brought him before the city magistrates. When he went to Thessalonica, they hired some worthless men to go in and and create a mob of people to get Paul kicked out. Then he went to Berea and the Jews from Thessalonica followed him from Thessalonica to Berea and they stirred up the crowds in Berea. And then he went to Corinth and they took him down before the judgment seat, before Gallio, and they brought all of these charges against him and tried to get him run out of Corinth. And then he went to Ephesus and what happened in Ephesus? All of those pagan idolaters filling up the theater of Diana, shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For two hours. And then he leaves Ephesus and he goes to Jerusalem. And what happens? A mob breaks out and they try and kill him in the temple. Everywhere that guy went, there was a mob uprising. But is that the whole story? The whole story is that Paul wasn't responsible for all of that. Who was responsible for all of that? The Jews and the opponents of the Gospel were responsible for all of that. And I think Felix suspects that because the letter that he got from Lysias said, I deem that he's done nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. And the letter he got from Felix tells Felix that he was the target of an assassination. Paul's not an assassin. He was the target of an assassin. He's not the instigator of the mobs and the violence and the uprisings. He's the victim of all of those things. And Felix knows that. But Tertullus leaves all of that out. He's guilty of creating sedition. Friends, do you realize that for the first 300 years of the Christian church, that was the charge that was brought against Christians over and over and over and over again. They create sedition. They create dissension. Do you know why? Because Christians wouldn't bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. Because Christians wouldn't worship the Caesar, the emperor. Because they refused to partake in all of the emperor worship. They were seen as being seditious. Those who wished to overthrow Rome. That was not their desire. They were like Paul. They advocated having peace towards civil authorities. Submission to civil authorities as far as you can without violating Scripture. To respect authority because no authority exists 
except from God. And to resist the authority is to resist the ordinance of God. That was the perspective of Christians. Never a seditionist. Never a revolt. Never a revolutionary. They followed Jesus' attitude. Paul's attitude. Peter's attitude. And yet, you know what they were constantly accused of? Uprisings, sedition, and revolt. Because they wouldn't worship the Caesar. You know what's funny about all of this? The irony of it is, here's Tortullus who's representing the Sanhedrin, who represents the entire Jewish nation. So Tortullus is arguing for the entire nation of the Jews, essentially. And there was no group of people on the face of the earth who desired the overthrow of Rome like the Jews. And what is he, what accusation is he raising against Paul? He's a seditionist trying to overthrow Rome. That's what they wanted. Tertullus, or Felix, has to know that this is what Tertullus wants. They themselves were seditionists. And to the Jews, every seditionist was a hero. But here was one they hated, and so they accused him of sedition. And do you notice something about the accusation? They have no witnesses. There's something else. Do you notice how general it is? This is the man who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. They don't mention a specific city, do they? Don't mention a specific time, not a specific instance, not a specific person. Just all of these generalities. That's how Satan, that's how Satan prospers his lies. It's general things. Never specifics. They don't want to name specifics. You know why? Number one, they don't have any. And number two, if they give a specific city and a specific instance, you know what Felix was likely to do? Transfer Paul to that city to stand trial. And they don't want to lose Paul. They have an opportunity here under a brutal dictator of sorts to accuse a man of something that this brutal dictator has a history of destroying and putting down with force. And now they have that opportunity and they want to accuse him, trusting that Felix is going to kill Paul simply on the accusation of being a seditionist. And if they give evidence of it, or if they quote a specific example, Felix is going to ship him off and they can't afford that. So it's just real general. It's just real vague. Sedition. A violation of Roman law. The second accusation that they raised against him was one of sectarianism. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A ringleader. The word ringleader was a military term and it meant somebody who stands in the front rank. Now it's interesting that since he's just accused him of being a seditionist, somebody who wants to overthrow Rome and civil order and all of that, that he would use a military term to describe his role as a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes, isn't it? He's just accused him of being a seditionist. He said then the man is like a military leader. And the implication is that he has a whole bunch of people behind him that he is leading who also desire the same thing, who themselves are revolutionaries, who themselves are seditionists. So the accusation goes beyond just Paul to those people that he leads, namely the sect of the Nazarenes. And can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember that statement? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a pejorative. This is a derisive term. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, here's the heart of the accusation. Listen. The Jews and Judaism and their temple worship and all the things that went with their worship was protected under Rome as an official state religion. It was given religious protection, and the Jews were allowed to worship according to their conscience and according to their scriptures. The Romans allowed them to do that. And the Romans had strict requirements on and strict control of over organized religious groups and their methods of worship. And what Ananias and Tertullus are getting at is this. Paul is the ringleader of a sect. In other words, it's not Judaism. It is a sect, and it is the sect of the Nazarenes. And the argument is this, that as the leader of a sect, that this sect, known as Christianity, should enjoy no religious protection, 
No legal protection and no toleration underneath of Roman law. It should be an illegal religion. Judaism is a legal religion. He's the leader of a sect. His sect is illegal. It's something other than Judaism. That's what they're getting at. And if, if Felix is willing to pronounce verdict against the Apostle Paul, he would in essence be making Christianity itself illegal. Now is that really what they're getting at? Are they really trying to get him uh, Christianity made illegal and a law passed against it in the court? That's exactly what they're driving at. Look at verse 14 and 15. Look how Paul defends it. He says, This I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, and that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Their argument is what Paul represents doesn't represent Judaism. It's something else. It's something illegal. And what Paul says is what I represent not only represents Judaism, it is the fulfillment of Judaism. Paul's arguing that he worships his God, the God of their fathers, the same God that these men claim to worship. He worships them according to the Scriptures and that what he was representing in Christianity was the fulfillment of all of the Jewish hope. In other words, Paul's counterargument is what I lead is legal because it is the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. And their argument is what he leads is something other than the Jewish religion and you ought to make it illegal. They accused him of sedition, which was a violation of Roman law. They accused him of sectarianism, which was a violation of Jewish law. It was a violation of Jewish law because he, he led something that they considered to be heretical and apostate, something other, leading people astray. And the third thing they accuse him of is sacrilege. He even tried to desecrate the temple. Now that, that accusation sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Have we heard that one before? That goes all the way back to the day that they arrested Paul in the temple. And do you remember what the accusations were? This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against the law, against the temple, and he has defiled this place by bringing a Greek into it, Trophimus, the Ephesian. And they had seen Paul down in the marketplace with Trophimus earlier in the day, and they assumed when they saw Paul in the temple that he had brought Trophimus past that dividing wall in the temple and had defiled the inner part of the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. Now this is the, the most serious crime as far as the Jews were concerned that they raised or charged Paul with. And here's why they're bringing this up. Do you remember when that happened? Back in Acts chapter 21, I told you. That was the one crime, desecration of the temple was the one crime that the Jews were allowed to try an individual for and execute him for, whether he was a Gentile, a Jew, a Roman citizen, or not a Jew. That's the one capital offense that the Jews could ex execute somebody for under Roman law. That's what they accuse Paul of. And you know what they're trying to do? Two things. They want jurisdiction of Paul. Because if they can prove that he desecrated the temple then Felix, by law, is going to hand Paul over to them and say, then you try him, you have jurisdiction of him, he's yours. And friends, that is exactly what they want. They have been trying to get jurisdiction of Paul ever since Lysias took Paul out of their hands. They want Paul turned over to them so they can try him and execute him. He desecrated the temple. The second thing they're trying to do is to explain why they arrested him. Look at that at the end of verse... Six, he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. They're trying to explain why it is that Paul got arrested in the beginning. Notice it says that he tried to desecrate the temple. In other words, the implication is he was attempting to desecrate the temple. We didn't allow him to. Our arrest kept him from desecrating the temple. Because once again, they have no witnesses, something that Paul is going to 
capitalize on. They have no proof of the crime, something that Paul is going to capitalize on. What they're trying to do is accuse him and say, he was attempting to desecrate him, and it was only our arrest of him that cut him short. Sacrilege. Sedition, a violation of Roman law. Sectarianism, a violation of Jewish law. And sacrilege, a violation of God's law. Now, do you notice something again about those three accusations? Do you notice how they demonstrate, or sorry, I should say, do you notice how they do not even reflect the original accusations that were given against Paul in the temple? What were the original accusations? It had to do with his teaching, right? He preaches against our people, against the temple, against the law. And now all of the accusations have changed. Has the truth changed? Has history changed? Had what Paul done changed? None of that had changed, but what had changed? Their accusations. See, friends, that's the way the enemy does it. That's what liars do. Liars always change their stories. People who lie always change their stories. They always have something new to add to the old lie. And their lie is always crafted to fit whatever audience they're in front of. Their lie is always always designed and crafted to fit whatever purpose, whatever occasion, whatever opportunity that they have. But the truth hasn't changed, but their lie has. They drop all of this stuff about his teaching against the people in the temple because if they had brought that up, Felix would have said, that's not a crime. You're free to go. Get out of here. Stop wasting my time. But instead they fabricate all of this stuff. He's a seditionist. He's a sectarian. And he committed sacrilege. And they lie about him. And then notice how they whitewash history. This is another thing that liars do. Liars hate the truth and they can't stand the truth. So they always find a way of putting their own little spin, their own little twist on history, their own little way to make things look like... Everything favors them. Now, you remember what Lysias did? Do you remember how Lysias did this in the letter? He said, the mob violence broke out, and having learned that he was a Roman, I went down into the temple and I rescued him from their hands. Lysias cast the whole official story in a light that would present, in a way that would present him in a good light, as if he were the hero of the situation. He put sort of his official spin on the whole situation. And now they're doing the same thing. They've got to know that Lysias has documented his side of the story for Felix and for all of those who are present in the courtroom. And so they're now they're going to give their official side of the story. It says, but we arrested him. Or then we arrested him. Now, did they arrest him? No, they tried to beat him to death. Is that what you call an arrest? Grabbing a guy by the scruff of the neck and dragging him outside the temple and shutting the doors and then proceeding to beat him in an attempt to kill him? If that's an arrest, then yeah, they tried to arrest him. It was Lysias who came down and arrested him. We arrested him. They said. But then look what else they say. Verse 8, or verse 7, But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Is that what happened? Lysias came and with much violence took him out of our hands. Governor, judge, all we were trying to do was try him according to our law. We had him arrested. He had violated, desecrated the temple. So we seized him in the temple. We had arrested him. And then in comes Lysias with his mob of soldiers. And they come in and with much violence. They strip him right out of our hands. And you may have heard about there all this violence in the temple and all this violence in Jerusalem and this big mob, but it was Lysias' fault because he came in with much violence. We were just peacefully taking the Apostle Paul back to the Sanhedrin to try him according to our law. And in rushes Lysias, overreaching his jurisdiction, grabbing him and with violence, taking him out of our hands. What they want is their jurisdiction. What they want is the Apostle Paul under their control. And they're saying, we had him under our control. Everything was going fine until Lysias came, took him from us, gave him to you, and told us to come and present our case to you. He overreached his jurisdiction. What they want is the Apostle Paul back. Now, at the end of all of this, verse 9 says, the Jews also joined in the attack, saying that these things were so. 
<laughs> Tertullus has lied, and these men are swearing to it. Yep, that's it. That's exactly how it happened. That's to the best of my recollection. This is That's what happened. What a group of liars. Now, friends, do you realize that there is absolutely nothing new under the sun? Malcolm Muggeridge has said, all new news is old news happening to new people. You hear that? All new news is old news happening to new people. There is nothing new under the sun. The attacks that are raised against the Apostle Paul in this court setting are the same attacks, the same things that are raised against Christians today in court settings, in the media, in your workplace, from your boss, from your coworker, from your family member. All of the attacks are the same. They accuse us of being seditionists. If you let a Christian wear a robe and try a case, or you let a Christian be a legislator or a president, all they're interested in doing is overthrowing our democracy and instituting a theocracy. That's the charge, sedition. That's all Christians are after, is instituting a theocracy. You can't let intelligent design into the school. If you do that, it'll overthrow science. Because we're just a bunch of seditionists. And the charge of sectarianism. That Christian just represents this small sect of people, and they don't speak for the majority of the American people. And by the way, that sect of people, their viewpoint doesn't deserve re- religious protection or free speech protection. Why? Because it's religious speech. And if it's religious speech, then it violates the separation. And that leads us to the third charge, that of sacrilege. We have this wall that existed in the temple. And Paul was accused of bringing a Greek past that wall into the inner temple and thus defiling the temple. Do you know what wall exists today that we're accused of violating? Anytime you bring Christianity into the public discourse, into the legislative process, into the schoolroom, into the courtroom, into anything, it violates what? The wall of separation of church and state. That's sacrilege. You're going to defile our Constitution, and you're going to defile our Declaration of Independence, and you're going to defile our democracy by doing that. Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. All new news is old news happening to new people. Same charges. Now, Paul faced those charges, and how did he fare? Pretty well. For 2,000 years, Christians have faced those charges, and how have we fared? Pretty well. Why? Because the truth is the truth. Is there anything to fear from those charges when they raise them against you? Is there anything to fear? Was Paul afraid? I don't think Paul was afraid. Look at his attitude. Knowing how long you've governed this nation, Felix, he says, I cheerfully make my defense before you. He is looking forward to the opportunity of setting the record straight and telling his story and giving his message. And that's your attitude and my attitude as well, or at least it should be. Look forward to the opportunity to set the record straight, to proclaim the truth, and to tell the message. And do it even in the midst of all of the false accusations. The Lord had said to Paul, Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. Now Paul knows that no matter what lies are told, no matter what accusations are raised, no matter what decision Felix makes regarding him, one thing is certain, it's going to bring him one step closer to Rome. He knows that. And there's nothing to fear. And so he just presents the truth and leaves it to God. And we're going to see how he does that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement that it is to us. We thank you that the truth always triumphs. We thank you that we have nothing to fear from lies, misrepresentations, inaccuracies, and accusations. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that Christ is true. We thank you that your spirit continues to work through that truth and through your word. 
We ask your blessing upon us as we are faithful to proclaim that truth, to ignore the accusations, and just press ahead with what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.